My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 34 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. Hey everyone, hope you're all well and enjoying their racing season. This week we have an Eco Trail Wicklow 2021 special with some great tips on tapering for trail running races with head coach from Running Coach Ireland, Rene Borg, as well as an in-depth look at the four fantastic trail courses on offer next weekend in Wicklow. Everybody, get your running gear on, let's go. Rene Borg from Running Coach Ireland. Rene, you're very welcome. And we're really excited this week because we are just a week away from Eco Trail Wicklow. After two years of preparation and the disappointment last year, finally, in just over a week's time, we'll be in Bray enjoying Eco Trail 2021. Yeah, you know, it was a bit of a shock, nearly, that we got to go ahead because um, I was just talking to Paul, who is my co-organizer, you know, in, in Equatry Wicklow, the main organizer, actually. I'm kind of, I help him out. And uh, we were up in Kilroderry to have a, a look at, at the trails there. And he was saying last year, he was so certain we were going to go ahead and we didn't, uh, you know, with, I think, five weeks notice or something like that. And this year, going into late August, neither him nor me, had any expectation at all that it would go ahead nearly until the day before the announcement yeah. uh, and, and now it's gone ahead so you know uh, some of the listeners they may, may not know but you know i've kind of had two hats um normally i have a race organizer hat and a coaching hat you know so i've been i've been wearing the race organizer one a lot these last two weeks um and uh, you know it's, it's a very different it's a very different piece of work um, that goes into that than than the coaching. And I think we, we were hoping on this call, Owen, and I'm, I'm sure you'll elaborate a bit on it anyway, but we were hoping to combine the talk about the two, to talk a little bit about EcoTrail and um, the training that goes into the final period um, and related to, you know, the training that goes into any big trail race um, so that it has a kind of a general applicability for people, but then also talk about the race um, a little bit more focused. I don't know. We haven't done so many race focused um, talks on, on this podcast, um, but this is a fairly big event. Uh, it's going to have over uh, 1400 entrants over the four races on the day. Um, and we think there is, there's enough to talk about that whatever we're going to explain, it won't just be relevant to EcoTrail. I think we, we're going to try anyway and see all the advice we can kind of squeeze out of talking about the EcoTrail course. How is that relevant maybe for other trail races and how does it compare to other trail races? Yeah, that's it exactly, Rennie. That's the that's the introduction that we were hoping to get through. And I suppose just full disclosure on my side, Rennie, as well, of course, that I'm part of the Eco Trail team there as well, helping yourself and Paul out just on the marketing and the communication side. So all the all the Facebook posts and Instagram posts over the last two years, and it's amazing that we've been able to keep them going for the last two years with with no race, of course, last year. And you said it there yourself, Rennie. Yeah, what we're hoping to do today is. Two segments of the show, the first one with your coaching hat on and maybe give people some advice on the final taper. Now, some runners might need a big taper at all because there's four different distances on the day. And then other runners, you know, this could be their A race. This could be the 46K, the 45K or the 80K could be their big race that they've been planning for all summer where they do need a taper. And it's an interesting conversation as well because... We're all familiar with the taper strategy for road marathons, just, you know, hundreds, thousands of articles written on it. But you don't come across too many tapering articles in the trail running world. So maybe we could start off on that, Randy, before we get into some good technical advice with your event controller hat on, on the different distances and some tips on that. And we can talk about the race itself. But if we start off with some tapering tips, Renee. From a coaching point of view, what advice can you give to the listeners that are getting ready for EcoTrail Wicklow? Or maybe if it's not EcoTrail Wicklow, maybe it's just another trail race that's coming up over the next couple of weeks. Do they apply the same theory that they might have learned or that they might have practiced before in a road marathon? 
Yeah, kind of. So the, the, obviously, I said there's four different distances. Uh, so the, the shorter the race is, the less of a taper you do. You know, all of the standard rules for tapering kind of apply. But the standard rules of tapering are always dictated by the distance of the race on the one hand and how important the race is as well, right? So the, the very traditional way to kind of dichotomize it is to say that you have an A race, a B race, and a C race. And I think we might have spoken about this recently enough, but based to, to recap it, the, an A race is you usually have one or two every year and you tend to put out all the stops to be as fresh as possible for those races. That's where you usually see these kind of long two, three week tapers. And um, the B races are races where you want to do well and you don't want to be totally beat up and tired, but it is not the main goal. And it's probably not a super long race either, like a marathon or above. So in those races, usually just a few days, you're maybe a week at the most that you back off a little bit. And then finally, you have C races and C races are events you want to do usually just because you, you social reasons or some kind of early season, see where I'm at kind of thing. Um, and just Generally there, the idea is that you just train right through them. So, you you know, at most you might back off the day before, but you don't really do any extra rest. So you, you would have to look at Eco Trail, uh, for instance, or any other trail race and say, well, is this race an A, B, or C for me? So I'm sure we will have people who are coming along maybe to the 19K and they're planning, let's say just for example, they're, they're planning to do the 127K, you know, Wicklow Way and um, the full ultra, I think it's November now. Uh, and maybe they're doing the 19 or the 29 or even the 45K. And that's more of a training run for them, you know, because they are just preparing for the much greater challenge. And I actually have one client who's doing that. So they're using the 46K as a training run for, for that. So that means for them, they're not going to do much of a taper. This is just another big training week and it's kind of capped off with the 46K race. Um, but if you do... Think of it as, you know, this is what you've been building up to. And um, then you are looking at a similar strategy, Owen. So you're looking to say, based on your experience, do you feel you need one, two or three weeks uh, where you start taking off the volume? Um, and then you would do that regular taper. And the only thing that is really different is that you if you're training for say the 19 or the 29k you wouldn't have to drop the volume quite as much as for the marathon you know you could keep your training volume a little bit closer to to what it used to be and with these sort of things it's always helpful to remember what's the idea with a taper because you know sometimes you hear a word and you read a book and you're like okay i'll just do exactly what it says a taper is this so i'll just do it uh, and then what you end up doing is not quite what your body needs or what your temperament can deal with. So, yeah. you, you know, because, uh, this, this kind of goes back to this whole thing that some people, when they have a long taper, they lose confidence or they get really edgy and irritated because of the sudden drop in activity. Yeah, and maybe a solution really for that one is to maintain frequency where you might see, you know, the typical taper plans where in the week leading up to your, your A race, you might have two days off, maybe even three days off, you know. And for us runners who love getting out, you know, running is our medicine, running is our de-stressor. Imagine the nerves of race week combined with not running for two days or three days. So I think a very good tip on the taper week is that maintain maybe your usual frequency. If you get out six days a week, you know, no harm getting out six days a week, but absolutely reduce the volume and reduce the intensity. Although at the same time, Rene, am I right in saying that you don't want to be running slow all week either? No, and again, it depends a little bit on the race. Um, and it does that in two ways. Um, generally for shorter races, you actually only drop the volume on, you, you kind of keep the sharpness and the frequency. Um, although, you know, with that said, you, you wouldn't do, a monstrous intensity session, you know, and especially not in the last week. And the reason is that high intensity sessions, when you get them a little bit wrong, they take four or five days to shake off. Yeah. Um, so that kind of puts you a little bit 
uh, you're, you're a little bit cutting it close if you have a race on Saturday and then you do your monster interval session on Tuesday. You know, you, if, yeah, you, get, yeah, if yeah. you get that any bit wrong, then you're going to feel it in the race. And then on um, the flip side, Renny, then as well, if you do do a good quality session, I think normally it takes probably, what, 10 to 14 days for the body to get the, the benefits of that training session. So say if you've had maybe an injury or you missed a long run, trying to cram it in on the last seven days it's just going to make you fatigued, isn't it? You're, you're not going to have time to let the benefit of that training settle in and get the positive training effect. Yeah, and it, that's why it's, it's, you know, it's always really useful to, to know what sort of training stimuli that accrue over long periods and short periods, because this is a problem I know a lot of people do. You know, they feel, oh, Jesus, I wasn't quite fit enough for the race. And then they try and cram everything into the last few weeks, yeah. you know, and it just doesn't work because, as we know, aerobic capacity, for instance, which is the main determinant of how well you're going to do in the race, regardless of what else you're going to do. That takes six to 12 weeks to build. So, you know, the long run you do the two Sundays before is not going to make a blind bit of difference. You know, all that's going <laughs> to yeah. do is it's going to maintain what you already have. Yes. Yeah, so what, what really ta taper training does is that there are some things that are very short and that, that can, sorry, that can, there's things the body can respond to very quickly. And neuromuscular effects is basically what you can you can tune that. That's a good way to look at it. They even call it tuning, I think, now in some of the literature. Um, and they talk about things like leg stiffness. And what they mean is that certain types of sessions and terrains will make your body more primed for the exercise that you're going to do. So, for instance, certain types of exercise, like training on road or hard surfaces or doing interval training in sprints, that increases the neuromuscular stimulus and it increases what's called leg stiffness. And leg stiffness has to do with a lot of things. It's not just that your tissues get stiffer, but it's a kind of a good metaphor for, for trying. So it basically means your, the springs in your legs are a bit stiffer. For certain races, that's exactly what you want. So the shorter the race is, the higher you want that leg tension or stiffness to be. So that means if you have a relatively short race, you do want to do some sharp, sharp stuff and you might want to keep on harder uh, uh, surfaces so your legs don't get soft. Then on the other side of that is it's generally the opposite for things like ultras, because in ultras, you need less leg stiffness, ironically, um, so that the body's, and the body's a little bit more relaxed going into the race. Um, and that's also hormonally that comes into it as well, that you don't want to be, you know, whenever you do high intensity training, you slightly stimulate this anaerobic system we've talked about and the sugar burning. And yeah. any little bit turning that tap up too much could mean that when you go in then and do your 46k or your 80k race you are slightly tuned wrong and you're just burning a little bit too much of the wrong fuel too early and then you need maybe you know either you you need to take in more sugar uh, during the race which can cause problems or you're just not as efficient over the 80k as you would have been if you had done the last two or three weeks you know slightly more cleverly so it's, it's very commonly this happens because people over race or they do a little bit too too much of the um, kind of high intensity exercise in the last three weeks when training for something like equal to 46k or 80k yeah and a great one Rennie, as well a great question that i've seen over the years is that should trail runners should they include hill work over the last 10 days or so and i've seen different articles with different answers on it i've seen some of the top guys who they avoid hills completely over the last maybe 10 days or so so they're really fresh come race day and then others who maybe who are looking for that bit of tension that you just spoke about there that do continue to go on the hills all week long just to maintain that that strength in the legs that will help them get to the finish line on race day what you often do is that when you go into a race, if you have any kind of lack of confidence or you feel you're trying to catch up, um, you just run your reserves down a little bit too low, trying to tank confidence. Uh, but by tanking confidence, you run all the other systems down that you have. You know, you just leave a little bit too much of a gap in your glycogen tanks and your muscles. And you might, you know, have tired out some fibers that need to be fresh. You know, a very good piece of advice I got years ago um, when I met Kenny Stewart, who was one of my heroes, I met him over at the Snowden International Race. And one, I, th I think one of the questions we got to ask him was about his taper. And he, he was obviously a hill runner. And he, had, he preferred not to do any hard hills at all for the last seven to eight days before. 
And that was because he felt he needed to unload the legs totally. Yeah. So they were really, really fresh. There are some runners who like to do a few quick hill sprints uh, the week before because they feel it's a little bit like, you know, lifting a few weights. It just kind of gets the muscles firing and activated, but it doesn't tire them out. And I, th I think you can generally get away with that. And we do use it for some of our runners, but we don't go out for intensive hill rep sessions or, or long hill runs, you know, in those last seven days. Yeah, even like a nice, easy, relaxed run over some hills is probably ideal rather than the, the 10 by two minutes up here with one minute recovery that should have been done three or four weeks ago. So I think the, the key message there really is not to try and squeeze any key session or any big long run in the last seven days before we get the, the 25th and, and Saturday morning in Bray. Maybe one final area in this topic, Rennie, that we could touch on is, is just everything outside of running. Because for an important race like this, if Eco Trail is your A race or whatever your A race might be, it's so important to give yourself lots of TLC in all the other things, like sleeping, trying to reduce workload if at all possible try and organize you know the the family life and the and the kids and try and maybe give yourself a bit of a break for a day or two then if possible of course very hard to do sometimes but really to try and have a relaxing seven days. And I remember I said it before in one of our segments, Rene, that before my big races, when I was getting ready for big, say, cross-country championship races or even, say, trial races for the Irish mental running team, I would actually take the Friday off work and just chill out at home, you know, feed up on the couch, watching a great film. And it always worked. It was such a great way just to get you ready for the weekend. Your weekend, your week, sorry, finished on Thursday. And then you had Friday to yourself before racing on the Saturday or the Sunday or whatever it might be. Um, and then sleep, of course, as well. And I'm sure you have some thoughts on sleep. One thing that I might just add with that one is that maybe to maintain your sleep routine for the whole week, that it's not necessarily a good thing to maybe have big lions in the two or three days leading up to race day because that will probably knock your your sleep clock out where all of a sudden you have to get up at six o'clock or seven o'clock to make the start line but you've been staying in bed till 11 o'clock the day before or whatever it might be so that kind of knocks knocks yourself out any tips there on the on the tlc on the self tlc yeah no days i think it's it's actually you know you have to Right. This is another part of the tuning, you know, uh, and, and, you know, Avalidia, he used to say you should feel like a caged lion by the time you come to the end of your taper. So that means you shouldn't be feeling like a drowsy mole, you know, and um, this did so in a way that when you if you do too much TLC and as you say, you start oversleeping and things like that it actually puts you in, in the rest state too early before this, you know, it will be a bit like, you know, we are, we are warriors, you know, we're preparing for battle and then we have a really sluggish week uh, before the, you know, we go up and fight the Persians at the, you know, marathon planes or whatever. I don't think that would work out very well for anyone. You know, you need yeah, to stay, yeah. you know, you need to stay sharp. You just want to stay fresh. Uh, so definitely I would say, yeah, don't change your sleeping schedule unless it was terrible. You know, if you were absolutely underslept, try and get back in a normal routine. Um, and by all means, do a few things to make yourself feel better. But it's not time to get lazy yet. You know, and, and a, a classical mistake people do is they overeat during the taper because yeah. the hunger hasn't readjusted. So they're still eating as much as they did when they had um, the high, the full volume. So you just need to be a little bit careful. It's okay in the early, like say the first two, three, four days of the taper, you might still be hungry after the last really heavy block of training because that's usually where the biggest block came, you know, it's just before the taper. So often the body is very hungry just after that. But then you need to watch it because now you're dropping your volume for maybe uh, two weeks at least. Uh, so, so you could accidentally gain a little bit extra along the sides. Same time, you do gain water, right? Which just warn people about that. Own if you take, if you weigh yourself regularly, when you start freshening up and um, getting the extra rest, and your glycogen stores get full, and when they get full, there's more water stored in the muscles. So uh, this is why you know a lot of marathoners see that they gain a kilo in the taper and they start panicking. But quite often, it's just water because for the first time, maybe in three months their glycogen stores are full and you're actually gonna you're going to shed that water during the race 
And, and I'm sure most people, I think, Benny, are aware to avoid the pasta parties the night before race day. Now, you know, thankfully, um, you know, we won't have that problem this year or unfortunately, whatever way you want to look at it, we, we won't be able to organise anything like that with the restrictions that are in place. But I think maybe just a reminder again to avoid eating a massive, big carbohydrate dish you know, two or three hours before you go to bed the night before, because you might think, oh, I need to f- fill up my glycogen stores, but they will be filled from your breakfast, from your lunch, from an afternoon snack, and then just a light dinner is really, that's all that's needed just to top up, because you'll probably be having a breakfast the next morning as well. And the worst thing you could probably do is fill up an already full stomach before you go to bed, and then you're tossing and turning for the whole night. Yeah, that's, a, you know, it all depends a little bit on how you respond to food, but there are certain foods that um, probably for everyone, they take quite a while to digest, you know, the classic example is steak, you know, and I would be a steak man, Owen, you know, and um, I like it, but I, I know that it takes two days to digest a good piece of steak. So that's, that's a very poor choice on a Friday night before the Saturday race. Whereas yeah. I, I, you know, I, I often eat fish because I like, I like meat. I have to admit that I'm not a... I'm not I'm not a good um I, I couldn't I don't like too many meals without it. Um but um fish then is usually my go-to on race evening. You'll have a, a, a nice fillet of salmon or something like that, because I always felt that doesn't in any way irritate my stomach. And for some reason it seems to be easier to digest for the body <laughs> than a rib. And what would go with it, Fanny? Would you have a few roast potatoes with it, a little bit of mash, or what would you have? Yeah, and share, you know what my base night meal and with you now as well. Yeah, no, my favorite is to make my own uh, both potato and sweet potato and parsnip fries. I tend to do a mix of all three. Uh, and then, you know, we have some vegetables on the side, usually steamed vegetables of some sort. And maybe a very light sauce if I'm really feeling naughty, or but, okay. but which okay. we generally not. Well, I'll, I'll give you a laugh now, Renny. What I've been practicing for the last couple of weeks for all of my hard marathon sessions, I'm getting ready for Belfast now in a couple of weeks' time. And I might have a bit of salmon, as you said. But with that, I would have a bowl of porridge right. <laughs> at around maybe half seven, eight o'clock in the evening time and um, Spanish dinner time over here, as you know. But I just thought that, you know, if we've been fueling ourselves or if I've been fueling myself with porridge um, before a lot of key sessions in the morning time over the last couple of years and it suits the body so well, it's a good, healthy carbohydrate. Why not just have it the night before <laughs> your race day? It's it's easy to digest. It's settles quickly and it's all it's everything that you need a little bit of protein plenty of carbohydrates and then um, the, the good old-fashioned irish bowl of porridge for dinner and yeah well i should say I've, I've run a fairly decent race or two on on omelets own so i i think i have a i have a very tolerant stomach and yeah. the but i have had a few disasters in my early years before i knew anything you know so one piece of advice i can tell you is do not drink a strawberry milkshake three hours before a hill race no no and nothing new of course either nothing new in the in the final 24 hours and no, nothing new like gels or if you haven't tried them before leave them at home you, you'll be fine you'll be yeah fine. yeah because often yeah. especially when you travel this is a huge problem and actually one of our athletes um, in Kerry there told me this you know we had a i had a lot of evaluations last week with everyone who did the race and one of them told me that he came down much later than he had hoped and uh, he ended up eating a big pizza from a takeaway and he reckoned that really he suffered from that pizza for the first few hours um so he w- he obviously learned from that and i think i remember a similar story when i did, i was team leader many years ago at snowden and i heard a, someone told me a story that the team had arrived so late that they couldn't get anywhere proper to eat you know so they ended up getting junk food as well so one of the things i decided to change straight away was to make sure i found the only good restaurant we could find in clan barris and get us booked in you know so everyone could have a healthy meal the night before Okay. Okay. Very good. Listen, Benny, lots of good tips there. Hopefully everybody will have a nice, calm, stress-free week in the lead up now to the Eco Trail Wicklow on Saturday. Let's move over to the race itself, Rennie. Thankfully, the race has been sold out now for a number of weeks, which is great. And in one way, I think from an organizational point of view, it was difficult for us because we had to shut down the race start list there last week. And there were still lots of people that naturally enough with all the changes that were going on this year, people weren't sure if they could race or not. 
family commitments were being swapped around, you know, communions, all that type of stuff as well. So we were still getting a lot of change requests in right up until the last moment. But we just had to get to a stage where we had to say, listen, guys, sorry, we need to close our race list. We need to pass the list on. We need to get the numbers printed off. So hopefully, hopefully everybody that wanted a place, they got something. And if they wanted to switch distance, they were able to switch distance as well. Um, Let's have a chat about the four races, Rennie. It's they're fantastic courses through the beautiful trails of Wicklow, of course. And maybe we could quickly go through each one. And you know, you know the, the courses so well, Rennie. You live very close to that area as well. And I suppose what maybe myself and the listeners might be looking from you today is any good tips that you can share with us from the courses. Some people mightn't have been out in them yet. They mightn't have ran in 2019. So any little tips like in terms of what type of shoes to wear, any steep descents or ascents to look out for, technical descents to look out for as well, were in your hands for the next 20 minutes or so. Okay, well, yeah, let's see if we can if we can cover all the eighty kilometers. No, we we won't. We'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll see if we can get get the highlights. And as I said, let let's try and re- relate it to other races as well. You know how it, how it's different, or how the advice can you can take it and, and use it for other races. Uh, but yeah. they are what what I really like about the route and what really captured my imagination when the project was first presented to me. You know, it's this is now nearly three years ago. So Fred Verdier from Wicklow Tourism. You know, let's give him the full credit because it was his idea. And um, the basic concept was to run from sea to mountains, right? To run from Bray Seafront into the Wicklow Hills and come back again. Um, and to have a, a kind of a large, st- you know, start finish area with all the razzmatazz, you know, because I know there is, as we know, there's this romance around the small, low key trailer mountain races. And we all love those. And, you know, I think no one, would ever want them to go away but we also know that there's a place for races that try and have all the bells and whistles and um with eco trail that's what we're trying to build you know i think we've gotten a lot of it in place and um, but you know every year we hope to add more and that that's that's the goal you know so I would like, and this is just my opinion on, right? So I'm not speaking on behalf of the whole organization. This is just, I would like to see in five years time that we have 5,000 entrants, the same as Ecotrail Oslo, across the four distances. And, you know, that that's what I would really like. And that we, last year we had over, sorry, two years ago now, we had over 23% of the race entrants from abroad. And that is another thing that is quite unique. This race, it won't be quite as many, or sorry, this year, it won't be quite as many. But it is a nice feeling to come into a race and you see other competitors and you see all the numbers with the different countries on them, you know, because it just gives you this feeling this is an international race and it's a different dynamic and it's just something new. Um, but this year, of course, that'll be a little bit muted and there won't be quite the same festivities at the start and finish. But that's the first thing to prepare for is that this is more of the sort of finish and start line that you'll get in a road race, right? So it's a, it's a rather large pen. There'll be a lot of people there. So it's very important that you place yourself in a sensible position, you know? So if you know you're going to be in the middle of the field, try and place yourself in the middle of the pen as well, because otherwise you'll either, you know, you'll be feeling people flying past you early on, uh, or you might, you know, be holding back people um, on some of the bottlenecks, although there isn't actually a lot of bottlenecks on this particular route. Yeah, uh, so that's that's the first thing to to get prepared for. So that's if you if you come from if you're listening to this and you've mainly done the lower key races uh, that are in the trails, this is going to be slightly. It's going to feel more like the the road racing start and finish lines at the start. Yeah, and maybe an important thing to flag, Rennie, as well, of course, is that when yourself and Paul were revising the courses over the last week or two, there was a couple of small adjustments that needed to be made. Um, There was a couple of cleaner trail paths that had to be taken um, in consultation with the guardie. A couple of junctions were slightly moved forward, slightly moved back. So in the four races, am I right in saying that each race is roughly about one kilometer longer just for those two reasons? Yeah, that's right. We actually had a few more adjustments we did this morning. So that brought the, the 80 kilometer has come down a little bit. So the eight, it's only 900 meters longer. So it's 80.8K. Okay. But most of the other routes, yeah, got, got about a kilometer longer. Okay, um, yeah. And this is obviously something to be aware of in all trail races because, you know, if for most road races, um, 
they, they are nearly unchanged. I know they change a little bit as well as you go along. But on trail races, you, you have to go check the course every year to see has there been trail upgrades? Um, are there problems along the route? You know, maybe trees that have come down or other blockages, erosion, um, things like that. Uh, and you learn lessons from previous years, you know, so you learn where it was very difficult to mark um, or whether it was maybe congestion problems or other types of problems that were created by the route design. And you try and streamline that. And it's always kind of a balancing act for trying, trying to give people a route that is really intuitive to follow, even with the markers. But at the same time, you want to show off the most scenic paths and the best surfaces as well. Um, and where EcoTrail kind of differs there from, um, you could say, some, some other trail races is because we are trying to make it very open to beginners. You know, as I, as I say, I call it a gateway drug to trail running. Um, we are overmarking it, right? So it's heavily, heavily marked. And there's marshals at a lot of the more difficult junctions who are in place all day. Um, so, and that is to try and, you know, it's not because we want people to fall asleep out there, you know, and just blindly follow along. You should still be aware, you know, of what's going around you. Um, but you should expect to see very heavy marking compared to maybe what you're used to if you're a trail runner. So, you know, I obviously marked a lot of courses in my time for IMRA. And yeah. generally we go for a more minimalist style in that association because, you know, you don't want to plaster the mountainside with flags and you want basically people to be more aware that that's kind of the philosophy, you know, minimal marking just enough on the junctions that people can see roughly the direction they're going. So it'll be a good bit heavier here and you, they're going to see lots of yellow flags um, which are reusable um, and obviously go with the ethos and only where we have no other choice are they going to see some yellow and black tape, um, you know, because there are certain spots where you just can't get the flags in the ground. Yeah, and maybe when he the first bit of coaching tips or race technical tips I might ask you about on the race itself is in the 19k and I presume this is the same for all the races when I'm looking at the website here and the new course map that was put up during the week we've got a steep uphill with a 26.7 percent um, elevation gain there at one stage in it so roughly about one kilometer um, out of the start line, the guys are going to be faced with a very, very steep uphill. What advice, Rennie, would you give for people on that? Because, I mean, traditionally, you know, you might have heard coaches and spectators and club mates saying, go for the hill, charge up that hill, give it everything you have. But that might not necessarily be the smartest thing to do. Because if you're just in one kilometer into the race, you try and charge up that hill um, at the very, very start, you're going to blow up very, very quickly. You're going to get up to 170, 180 heart rate, and you are going to be bunched very, very quickly. So it might be maybe a good tip to take that first uphill climb very steadily. Yes, definitely. And it's, you know, there's two types of mountain and trail races. We, you know, there's the ones with multiple climbs and there's the single up and down. And it's a lot easier to get the single up and down right because, you know, you just have to have enough in the tank at the top to, to get back down. Um, but in the multiple climb races, uh, especially these routes, which have a lot of them, you know, that's one of the unique features. Like even this, we're looking here, the 19K, um, you know, that has, if I just count here, it has one, two, three, four major ups and downs um, and the other routes have more than that so that means you have to really manage your energy and think about not racing the first up and down as if it was the last up and down and it's you know a gradient like that 26 percent if people think about it there is when you run up a gradient like that it's it can be quite costly um but you're barely moving faster than if you walked it quickly yeah. So you you might, let's say you're going on the 80K just to kind of really take it to the extreme. I was telling some of the guys I have doing it over the week that you know, if you lose a minute to your competitor, to the top, that you know, which is about a mile into the race, um, you you because you run up in 11 minutes for that kilometer and your competitor decides to push it a bit and come up in 10 minutes or even nine minutes, that those one or two minutes are nothing late in the race. If as long as you have something in the tank, you know, you can make that vanish um, later on. So there's absolutely no real reason to be super aggressive, especially in the longer races on that climb. Um, you know, the average, the course record for the shortest race is 85 minutes. And for most people, it was obviously significantly 
more than that, right? The, the, the average running speed for the shortest distance was seven minutes 50 per kilometer. You know, so that gives, and, and that is obviously one of the slowest kilometers of the race. So it gives you a good indication of how much you can hold back on that first climb. And you, yeah. you get, and, and it's like that in quite a lot of hill races, really, you know, unless you have only one descent to make it up on, there's, there's no reason to be super aggressive. Like if you really are in a competition with some particular individual, as I know some people listening are, um, you know, maybe just keep them in sight. And uh, keep, keep, keep enough that you know you can probably put in a bit of a burst on the many descents that are coming. And also there's several flat bits that are coming later. Yeah. And it's just, it sounds like, Renny, it's really, it's a poor return on the energy investment, isn't it? To give so much so soon for so little time advantage on the people around you. And probably a good idea for people just to try and maybe maintain work effort, maintain their, their heart rate goal that they have set for the race, for example, whatever that might be, keep at that and the pace will be what it is, you know, rather than trying to storm up it. And as we were saying, you're going to burn out very, very quickly. In terms of Rene Dan, say some of the downhills, I see in the 19K, for example, we've got a long downhill, about just over a mile long, 1.71 kilometers. As far as I know, there's nothing too technical there. We've got a lot of questions about, say, what type of shoes should we wear? Um, some people like to chance it and go for road shoes and try and get a bit of speed that way. But I think the advice in general is that even though none of the descents are overly technical nor dangerous, it is probably a good idea to still to go with a pair of trail running shoes. Yeah, I would do that if I was going into the race. Um, although, as you said, one of the kind of characteristics of this route is that it's only on, it's only on, or mainly on sustainable trail, and it has a few tarred sections as well because we're crossing roads. You know, and we're moving from area to area. Okay. Um, you know, we're moving from from Bray and then into the Belmont area and then to Kilmac, which is another village. And, you know, for some runners all the way down to Roundwood Village. So we're moving through a few kind of suburban urban areas uh, briefly. But even with that, um, the trails that are hard, they still have there's a bit of a variety there. There's the different surfaces and some of them are not super uneven, but there are uneven bits with rocks and you don't want to high profile a shoe there. Because as, as you know, some listeners probably know, a high-profile shoe on any kind of uneven terrain, you're much more likely to do in your ankle. Uh, because the, when the, the high-heel shoe rolls, your ankle rolls much further. Uh, yep. So a trail runner is just that little bit more stable generally. So one of those good hybrid uh, trail runners that looks more like a road running shoe, but just has that little bit of traction, will probably help you kind of deal with all the various terrains that you'll encounter. And, you know, you, as you alluded to, Owen, there are a few of the descents that are technical and nothing as much as if you go and do, you know, one of the, the mountain races. Um, but there are a few sections where you need real footwork, you know, where you might have um, a little bit of roots there or you might have where the trail is a bit caught up by erosion or there's loose rocks lying on it, things like that. They're never long sections because you're trying to minimize it in this particular race, you know, as because it's more of an intro. But there are, there are a few of them because you just can't avoid them completely um, if you want to go the places we want to take people. Okay. For the two big races, Randy, for the 45K and the 80K, for people that are preparing for them, what do you think are the hardest parts of those races? Say, for example, on the 80K, we have just before our longest downhill, which is just over about two and a half kilometers long, we've got one big climb there before we, we, we begin to descend and head in towards Bray. Is that maybe the toughest part of the race around kilometer 54, 55? And then once they get through that, it's genuinely roughly about 20, 25 kilometers of more or less descending down to the finish line. Is, is that the most difficult part, do you think? I think there are two difficult parts to the ATK. Um, and this is just, you know, from kind of observing it as an outsider, because given I organized the race, I can't, I haven't I never run it in its entirety, but I've heard a few stories. And yeah. um, the, the first place, I think a lot of people um, will start to mentally be feeling it a little bit is when they get to Roundwood Village, where we have the major water station, there is a road section out of there and some fire road, which is 
can be, you know, if you've already, you've already seen it on the way out, and that means you, you're kind of running over terrain you've seen before, and then there's a long climb on wooden boardwalks back up to the Wicklow Ray around this mountain we call Jouse, um, which a lot of the listeners know, but just in case you don't, you know, it, this is the highest part of the course. That can be quite a hard section on the mind, you know, to have to go from Roundwood and all the way back out there. Uh, especially if there's any kind of harsh conditions on the day, you know, in terms of wind or rain. And the second part is what you talk about is that final section. When you come back to the two Sugarloaf Mountains that are in the race, uh, the two Rocky Mountains, the descents off them and then finally off Brayhead, that's three quite steep descents where the ground is hard. And at that late stage of the race, that's really hard on the legs, especially because for a lot of the ultra runners, when they get there, they might struggle to keep a high cadence, you know? So you might be relying on your poles to take a bit of stress off the knees, you know, or you'd really have to concentrate to try and keep a good quick leg turnover because otherwise your leg could really be battered on those last three descents. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I'm looking at the 46 K Rennie as well. And there's just, there's two sharp climbs just as you're in the last 10K at around 37 and a half kilometers, there's a, about a 190 meter climb up. And then just before we get into Bray, there's what, there's about a, a 110 meter climb as well, just between kilometer 41 and kilometer 42 and a half. So it's just really just to, you know, to get your mental mind tricks ready. And I think it was a couple of weeks ago in our podcast where we had our fantastic guest, Dr. Noel Brick, who wrote the Genius of Athletes book, he was giving some great mental tips about those hard parts and races. And he was saying that instead of saying to yourself, come on, you can do it, you can do it, it's to say, Owen, you can do this. Or Rene, you can do this. To talk in the third person to yourself. And a little change like that has seemingly worked very, very well in, in testing. So that might be one little trick that people can use to help get them to the finish line. And then, of course, while we don't have our normal party atmosphere or any that we'd love to have, we do, of course, have the sea right beside us in the finish line. And nothing better for a bit of recovery than a nice cold bath once you do get to the finish line and break. Yeah, and you can obviously go in at the seafront. You know, two years ago, we had organized uh, towels and everything with the Martello Hotel. But, you know, because of the prevailing restrictions, we can't be doing that. Um, so you will have to bring your own towel. But, you know, nothing is better than the sea. You know, just don't go out further than you're comfortable swimming. Yeah. But it's yeah. right. It's, it's literally right there. You know, so that's a rare luxury as well of it, having having the, the ocean and right there by the um, 100 meters from the finish. Um, there was a thing there just on the mental side, and this would work for any race like this. I think anyone should look at the course profile and just get familiar with what the mountains are that we are traversing. And people should remember that in this race, you don't go over. The only peak you go over is, is Bray Head, the little mountain peak at the very start and at the very finish. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, you're going over the shoulders of all the three other mountains on the route, the little Sugarloaf Giltspur and the great Sugarloaf and Jouse Mountain. Um, so, you know, the, the peak there is basically the highest point on the pass. But I think people should compartmentalize those, get familiar with those three major sections or, you know, in for the longer route, you, you pass some of them twice, compartmentalize them in your mind as individual tasks, you know, and, and only think about that task as you go through it. Because last year, a lot of people I could see on the pictures were, they were having a very hard time coming up a little sugarloaf. The, the climb there is quite steep, you know, and it's, it's, it's the second last climb of the day. Uh, but if you can just close your mind and forget about Bray Head, for instance, forget about it being on the other side. Just say, I'm just focusing on getting up and over this hump, and then I'll be at Belmont Water Station. And then I reset. I, okay, and then I start focusing on Bray Head because they, a part of what gets a lot of people is that we think too far into the future. And when you think too far into the future and uh, it can seem very overwhelming. Yeah, I know. And we, we mentioned the, the photographs there, Rennie, as well, that, you know, we will have, thankfully, some official photographers out on the course as well, because some of those mountains that you've mentioned there, 
the scenery is just beautiful around them. A little sugar loaf, great sugar loaf. The guys in the 80K, of course, have locked hay as well. So no need to take out the photograph yourself, guys, if you're listening. We will have photographers out on the course and hopefully, you know, everybody will get some stunning photographs of themselves running around the course as well. Um, before we wrap up, Renny, anything else that you think might be worth mentioning to the guys listening? I know, of course, this year we won't have any food or or energy gels out in the course i think it's just water um so just to bear that in mind of course as well to make sure you stack up but i think trail runners are quite good with that many that they always have enough food and gels with them it's not like the the road runners who, who depend on the gels to be given out to them at the desks and what have you um, so people hopefully will be prepared for that anything else Renny, that you can think of before we wrap up yeah, so it's good to just talk briefly about kits because obviously every race that you go into in, in this scene has a different kit. Um, but I, and we have a list and you should obviously check it out if you're in the race and make note of the differences from race to race. We don't require exactly the same uh, for all the races. Um, but as I think Ian Keith gave brilliant advice on the last podcast, you know, uh, better to have a little bit too much than a little bit too little. Um, and to also take personal responsibility. You know, we have put in a list that would work for most conditions. But at the end of the day, it's your safety, you know, and that means you need to look out the window at the morning of the race. You obviously trust that we've done our due diligence. You know, we've done everything we can to try and make it a safe experience for you. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you, no one will care more about you and your health than you will. And that means you look out the window, you think about the challenge and then consider what do I need? So if you think you need to bring a bit more than we've said, uh, bring it. Uh, you know, that, that's the advice I would give you. So, so for, for just one moment, put whatever the mandatory kit list is aside and say, if I was making all the decisions here, what would I bring? You know, and, and bring that and then bring what you have to bring in addition to that. Um, and that would go for, for, for any mountain race that you're in, because they, we do have in Ireland at this time of year, quite changeable conditions. Um, and as you know, the, this route, the ADK goes over 600 meters and it can be a very different proposition with wind and rain at 600 meters than a brace seafront at 100 uh, at just sorry at, at four or five meters of elevation um, and even the other routes do go as high as uh, as three four hundred meters as well you know so that's that's something to always consider when you're entering trail races is to look at you know what sort of elevation am i going up to and how is that going to affect the temperature and other things like that how is it's gonna, you know, even with the aid stations and our marshals and the ability to call emergency services, just consider at what point of the course could an accident befall you, you know, and how long would you, how long would it take you to limp down, for instance, from that spot to the nearest marshal? Uh, that it's good to just run a few of these scenarios through your head, even if it seems maybe a bit morbid to some people or uh, a bit negative, you know, to be planning for that. Now, yeah, hopefully, yeah, hopefully yeah, we'll yeah. have a gorgeous day, but you just don't know. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Renny. And I remember talking to some of the more experienced runners in Chamonix there a couple of weeks ago, and they gave a very good example of, say, the mandatory wind jacket or rainproof jacket that nowadays people will just look for the lightest possible jacket just to have that box ticked at the start line. But you have to ask yourself, well, if I do need a jacket, is this jacket actually going to work? Or is it just light because I want to save a bit of time, run a little bit quicker? Or if a storm does come in or something does happen, will this jacket, will it keep me warm? Will it keep me dry? So don't skimp on the jackets. Don't go for the lightest jacket just because it's the lightest jacket. Make sure you have a good quality jacket as well. And I'm just seeing on the website here, Renny, as well, that people that plan on going through the Sugarloaf aid station just around 63 kilometers after half five, they will need a head torch with them as well. And another just good tip here too, Bring some money, which is, well, who knows when you might need to buy a bottle of water or buy a bit of food or, I don't know, flag a taxi down, whatever it might be, just have a few quid with you too. 
Yeah, that's a bit unique this time around. You know, normally we provide food, but we can't this year. And uh, but there is this route is is odd, as I say, if, uh, compared to some trail races in that you pass through a significant or you pass by a significant amount of pubs and cafes. You know, we could nearly do a pub yeah. call <laughs> on it if you had if you had the time. You know, if it's a spare with in the cutoffs and everything else. But it does give you that option that if you are for some reason in a bad way and you're underpacked, but you have a you know, your credit card or a 50 quid note, you can very quickly, you can run into any number of places, you know, and get something extra that might make the difference. Yeah. And I suppose just that before we go, Rennie, as well, just to, just to remind people, not that our Irish trail runners need reminded, but just to leave the mountain as we found it to any bit of rubbish. And even if it's rubbish that you might see that somebody else might have dropped by accident or whatever, do try and leave the mountains and the trails spotlessly clean. It's so important. It's very much part of the eco trail concept as well of introducing people to the magnificent mountains and trails, but also 100% respecting the environment of those beautiful mountains and raising awareness of what trail running can mean as well for the mountains. We do have to be aware that we will have 1,400 people on the trails. That does leave an impact too. So if we can just make sure that any bottles or any papers or any even bits of food that we bring them all home with us. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of that all. Yeah, great stuff. Well, listen, Rennie, best of luck with your final week's preparations as, as event controller there and good luck to Paul and Fred and all the team as well. They've all been very busy, I know, over the last couple of weeks and just delighted that we can get to see everybody now in, in Bray in just over a week's time. Hope you enjoyed that, everybody. Rene, a big thank you for joining us. Good luck to all your own athletes from Running Coach Ireland that will be competing as well. You've been doing great work with the Eco Trailblazers, Rennie, and maybe just the last word to you on the Eco Trailblazers. You You've been working with them for two years now. And finally, with the help of Hoka, of course, as well, they'll get to run their race. Yeah, it's great to see that project come to fulfillment. You know, so we took on um, a group of people who were new to the mountains. That was the criteria. And Hoka sponsored them up with all the gear. And I helped them out with the training plans. Uh, so now we're going to see how they do, you know, and they finally get to tow the starting line. And so do you, of course, Owen, as I say, you know, I, I look forward now to, to seeing you face to face after us chatting now for nearly two years um, from, from Wicklow to Grand Canaria. You know, you, you'll, 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 be, you'll, you'll be at the finish line. I won't actually until quite late. Uh, because I'm on the course most of the day, but I do hope to catch you before. Because, but Owen, I'm sure you know once you're done and your voice is hoarse, you probably have family to catch up with. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. But, but ho- hopefully, I'll catch you uh, briefly at least at some stage. Yeah, no, I'll be looking forward to seeing yourself, Randy, and indeed all the runners. I'll be there on the microphone, giving everybody a big wave as they go off and giving everybody a big welcome as they get back to Bray to the finish line as well. And hopefully, indeed, all 1,400 people do get back home safe and sound. Rene, a big thank you as always. And I shall be seeing you in person, as you said, next week in Bray. Talk to you soon, mate. All right, thanks, Owen. That's a wrap for this show, everybody. And before we go, a massive shout out and a big congratulations to Corkman Paul Tierney, who completed the Tour de Jones three days, 16 hours, an incredible 12th place for the 330 kilometer race, 24,000 meters of elevation gain. Not many people get to finish the race, never mind in such a high up place. So Paul, a big, big congratulations from everybody to Trail Running Ireland podcast. The race was won by Franco Colley in 66 hours and 43 minutes, who set a new course record by just over an hour. And it was a hat trick of wins by Franco as well so some incredible running there well done Paul and enjoy the recovery this week everybody have a great build up to Eco Trail Wicklow we hope the race goes well for you and I'll be looking forward to shouting you all across the finish line next Saturday in Bray everybody get your running gear on let's go Bye.